Good morning. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. Wherever you are in the world, good whatever that is. It's Devin here for my uh, odd little podcast here. And it is 9.23 a.m. I have a litany of liquids of varying temperatures surrounding me here. And um, it is stormy in Vancouver, which is uh, refreshing, actually. A lot of times people comment how much they love the sun. They love the sunny days, and, and uh, when it becomes miserable, they get depressed. And I tend to find myself going the opposite direction. I've tried three times to live in Los Angeles. And each of those times, when I finally left, tail between my legs, a lot of the reason was the weather. It's just always nice. But it's nice in a way that's creepy to me. (laughs) The people who I know who have lived there their whole lives, and that's what they were raised with, love it. And I think a lot of that is just because that's what they were raised with. And myself, I was raised in Vancouver. And Vancouver is um, very dynamic in terms of weather. We'll go from 40 degree or, you know, in and around 100 degree, whatever your preferred temperature uh, descriptions are. And then it will go to snow in the winter sometimes. But we get seven months typically of rain here. It's like the UK, I guess, to a certain degree. But we're in the forest as well, so it's just soggy and gray and uh, I was raised with it and I find in absence of that type of weather I don't tend to write a lot there's been a couple of places that I've been that are inspiring weather wise that aren't miserable like this and I often think that I would really like Hawaii obviously or Maui of course I've never been but strikes me as being dynamic as well but because of the way that I was raised it's just in absence of that sort of dynamicism that the weather here provides I tend to just not be inspired to write at all and LA every time I went down there it was just I don't know it was like the Truman Show so that being said I feel like I'm waking up, so the words are coming slowly so far, but maybe in another five or ten minutes I'll be up to speed. I got some tea. I'm all right. And how are you doing? If you were to ask yourself, how are you doing? What's the answer that springs to your mind? Well... If it's good, that's great. And if it's not, I hope it gets better. We're in week 
9,434 of the great pandemic of 2020. I had a, an interesting week last week. There was a lot of things on a personal level that were happening, family and my living situation and, and all sorts of things. And I was put in a position to have to deal with that as we have to from time to time. And uh, it was a difficult difficult period and I remember thinking this last weekend that went by I was like wow things just got really really difficult but then the next day it's it's funny how it happens how three o'clock in the morning it seems like all these problems are are so uh, insurmountable and then the morning comes and even if they're still there, there seems to be a different perspective on how to cope with them. And I think I mentioned on one of these last podcasts that um, I tend to find this period goes in three-day cycles where I'll have three days of, of you know, sort of a dark mindset where things are difficult and things are uh, more challenging than they were. And then the pendulum sort of swings to the other side and I find myself empowered to, to work through it. So the days for me tend to start around 7 a.m., I suppose. I've got a morning routine that I like to do and then I start work in and around 9, take a break for lunch at about 1. Uh, kids come home from school at maybe about 3.30. So I take a short break then. I try to get some exercise at 5. Dinner. Then I go back to work until about 11. And uh, do it over again. I've got a nightly routine as well, but it's just that sort of sense of, of routine serves me well. It always has, to be honest. I like that. I like that kind of routine. Where was I? I don't know if it matters. I'm okay. It's miserable and I'm in my element. <laughs> so I've been writing. But I'm, I'm conscious as well of how my writing has functioned during the pandemic. Much of my work during the day, when I say I go to work, a lot of it's uh, logistical things. Like this week, I've got four to five hours of interviews a day. And then I'm getting all the tracks ready for the Halloween concert. And I've got ads to, ads to do for that. And I'm making stems for a bunch of these projects that I've been working on that I've been handing off to a producer and working with and just a lot of logistical things emails are always coming in and texts are always coming in in this particular period as well with everybody in the industry trying to find ways to to pivot the work there's a lot of opportunities I guess you could say 
but also distractions because amidst those opportunities are a lot of stalled uh, projects where people are trying to try something and, and then it falls through or I find I'm being asked to confirm tours reasonably consistently under the impression that they're going to fall through anyway but it's good to have the legwork in play in the event that they don't so there's a lot of a lot of that but the writing has been interesting for me i realize by writing in this frame of mind where in any other circumstance was there not a pandemic and was there not all the anxiety that goes along with it this would be <clears throat> an ideal situation for me just to be at home and and to be in the studio and to write but a lot of what happens during this period as well is that there's not a lot of real inspiration i mean there's inspiration that you can draw from but a lot of it is things that i don't have a lot of desire to to um, accentuate by writing about it you know it's like you can write a song about quarantine or pandemic or or your fear or your anger or your anxiety but i tend to find that by focusing on those things it doesn't make them better it just kind of strengthens them so I tend to look for other things to write about at this period. And with the absence of experience, I tend to sort of write meandering, sort of beige sounding material right now. There's a couple of things that have come up amidst maybe 25 or 30 songs that I've written that I think are really, uh, there's some potential there but it's a slow process. While I was going through the idea of doing these podcasts and while I was sort of reflecting on the ones that have been done, I realized that the value of these for me allows me to sort of verbalize the past and by doing so it gives me a direct link and a tangible way to analyze what has happened what life has presented thus far the good things and the bad and maybe ultimately doing these podcasts is simply a part of the process of the next record that I'm working on. Going through all the strapping stuff, we're now about to start what I guess we could call part two of the career. And that was with Ziltoid the Omniscient. So this album came out in 2007. And where do I even begin with this one? Well, let me think. At the end of the New Black, with the Hummer, DevLab, Syncestra, I had informed 
the guys in the band, in both bands, in Devin Townsend Band and Strapping Young Lad, that I needed to change on a professional level for the sake of the music, but on a personal level as well, because we were going to have kids, my wife and I. And I guess that was in a lot of ways, maybe subliminally, part of the lyrics for Alien with love and possessions, that song particularly. I never really wanted to have kids and I think a lot of that had to do with a fear. I saw a great interview I had mentioned this in an interview of my own the other day I saw a great interview with Johnny Knoxville of all people and he said something that I thought was really fantastic he was doing an interview and someone asked him how do you deal with failure and his answer was if you're doing something and there's no possibility of failure I'm paraphrasing here then you're not trying hard enough it was almost like to progress you have to put yourself in a position where failure is a definite possibility and I've known since the beginning that that progressing as a person as an artist as an entity is paramount to what it is that I've been trying to accomplish. And I guess having kids seemed like such a daunting thing, such a fear-laden task that I just had dismissed it, thinking, well, that's something that I won't do. I can't do it. It won't happen. I hate the idea. And in fact, now that um, you know I have a teenager and, and all the things that have gone along with that, and those of you out there who are parents would know that it's it can be at least um, soul-shakingly uh, frightening, the whole idea of being a parent. And I think a lot of the reason is prior to having kids my world had been so devoid of a reason for me not to focus on myself all that music prior ocean machine infinity terrier physicist strapping all that stuff it was the me show starring me with special guests me and I felt like my my themes, my objectives, you know, my quote-unquote mission was so important. It was of such significance that it required all sorts of things, all sorts of hyperbolic statements and and. Uh, lyrics and, and all these things and then when it had gone in the direction of strapping and, and I had perceived what I was doing as being so uh, 
dark and so serious and so evil and, and all these things. We finally had kids. It just shifted. Everything just shifted. And it seemed on some level really childish. My obsession with myself. All the the dramas with Infinity and all the drama with Alien and all the, you know, I don't know what's going to happen and, and where am I in life and is this piece of music, you know, it's a song like Truth, it's like this is the most important piece of music ever and all these sorts of things. And all of a sudden, when uh, the kid was born, I remember just feeling like, oh, oh, wow. I had a good friend who had told me, he said, well, when you have kids, it's going to be a choir of angels is going to sing and you're going to have an epiphany and it's going to change your life. And that's what I was waiting for, actually. I was in the delivery room. It's almost like I had my whole routine set up. I had balloons and a catcher's mitt and whatever. It's like, okay, let's, let's do this. And then when the kid was born, it was with such intense sort of, you know, the gore and the, the blood and, and all these things. But it wasn't an epiphany in this, in that sense. It wasn't this overwhelming, oh my God, this is the meaning of life. It was just, oh, that's how people are made. And this one has my eyes and I don't understand how it happened. And so as opposed to going down this existential rabbit hole that I was prone to go down, what happened instead is I just kind of shifted and I was like, okay, well, what do I need to do? I don't understand this. I don't understand. It's beyond my capacity to understand this. You can, you can say it's this miracle or it's magnificent, but that was kind of a given in a sense. It was just like, oh, it's nature. This is how humans are made. And the whole process of how reproduction works within the species and how we're biologically, emotionally, maybe in some sense spiritually uh, preordained to, to react to things in a certain way as a result of a biological imperative to propagate the species. But when that kind of just faded away, I was left with this awareness that, oh, I don't really know how that works. During Alien, I was convinced it was, well, it's, you know, the meaning of life. It's, it's, um, it's something to do with a, uh, a universal theorem. It's a mathematical mosaic of infinite present in which all one needs to do is, is analyze and analyze and go into oneself and explore psychonaut that kind of vibe, and eventually you will be able to unravel 
the secrets of the universe. But then when the kids were born, I remember thinking, well, that's a little arrogant, isn't it? To think that you're capable of unraveling the infinite. And then I thought back to infinity and I thought back to all these works that I had done that maybe unbeknownst to me at the time were were rooted in this sense of, oh, I'm capable of figuring this out. I'm capable of unraveling this. I'm capable of, of quantifying infinity. And so my epiphany, if you want to look at it that way, with having kids was just a lot more like, oh, what do I have to lift? I don't know how this works at all. What do I do? Do you want me to boil some bottles? Do you want me to... And I think that sort of humility that came with that was now that I look back 15 years later on Ziltoid, 14 years, whatever it is, I like math is not the strong suit, clearly. I realized that that lesson was the next one in line. So at this point as well, we had finished the band and it was, you know, the breakup of the band was um, trying on all of us. And I was left after those experiences feeling uh, shook kind of to the core and I thought okay well I'm going to clear my life out here I'm going to stop any extracurricular activities in terms of drinking or drugs or or anything and I'm going to cut all my hair off and I'm going to cut my little stupid facial hair thing off and I'm going to go get a job and I'm going to do what I need to do in order to take care of the family. And there was a type of resignation to that that was tinged with sadness to a certain extent, but it was also juxtaposed by all the interesting things that happen with, with having kids. Admittedly, in the first year which is when Ziltoid was written. Babies at that point are, somebody referred to them as need blobs. They're not really entities yet, in a sense. They just are screaming, shitting, puking, need blobs. There's no person that you can interact with yet. And so I was just running in circles trying to take care of that and my wife had postpartum depression undiagnosed and there was some uh, medical things that were going on with the kid that needed to be dealt with and and myself and I ended up putting on gosh 50 pounds I think and it was a lot of it was a lot of work and I had been smoking so much dope prior to this and, and mushrooms and all this sort of thing. And so 
Clearly, I stopped all that. And I remember one day in particular, it had been maybe six months. Baby was six months old. And uh, I thought, okay, well, everybody's in bed. You know, my parents are, are gone. It's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to have a smoke. It's the first smoke that I've had in, in months. And I'd been hyper vigilant up to that point. You know, the doctors had told us during the prenatal classes that sometimes infants just die. Sudden infant death syndrome. And when I pushed them further, I was like, well, are there any precursors to that? Their reaction was just like, well, you know, just sometimes that's what happens. And so I was sleeping poorly because I had not had that sort of responsibility before and I had not had to sort of offshore all this attention I'd been paying to myself and my work to anything else. I, I'd been in a very insular position. So I wasn't sleeping. Anytime I heard a movement, I was like, oh, it's sudden infant death syndrome. That's what it is. So finally, six months later, I was like, I'm going to have a smoke and, and that's it. Everybody was in bed. I had a smoke. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's It wasn't like it was at one point where I would you know, <clears throat> get stoned and um, write and think goofy thoughts and whatever. It was just all of a sudden the reality of what was going on was, was right there. And I was, I just was like, oh my God, now I'm getting paranoid and I'm walking in circles. And all of a sudden I hear screaming from upstairs and they're like, there's something wrong with the baby. And I go up there and baby was like like not choking but and then they put the baby in my arms they're like you need to take care of this and I just looked at it and I was just just ripped and I was just thinking I can't do this anymore I need to be responsible for this and all I'm doing now is thinking about well this is how human beings replicate and this is your offspring and all this sort of all this sort of spacey stuff that up to this point had been fascinating to me at this point not only didn't serve any practical purpose but made it very difficult for me just to function so i thought okay well this is also a good lesson i remember when the baby was born as well being at the hospital and the night before uh, he was born when we were going into the hospital I drank like a bottle and a half of red wine and when we woke up to go to the hospital, stopped at a Starbucks and I just went into the toilet and just barfed. <laughs> and so when he was born and I was in the hospital the next day and, and he was up all night and he's coughing and, and then uh, I was just watching him all night going, oh my God, he's coughing and he's turning red and... and so I went running out to the nurses and I was like, the baby is turning red. And they came back and they said, well, you know, when the baby is born, they've spent all this time in utero and there's the amniotic fluid that is in their lungs. And so in order to get that out, it's very common for them to turn red with the effort that is involved with coughing and expelling it. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Then I woke up the next morning to get a coffee out in the in the nurses' lounge, and there was maybe four or five nurses standing around the water machine, and they're talking, whispering, and then they look over at me, and one goes, "Hey, uh, 
how's your red baby? <laughs> I'm like, I don't fucking know. Come on. This is new for me. I was pretending I was a heavy metal guy for the past 10 years. This is, this is real now. This is not, this is no longer some sort of abstract, existential, artistic metaphor. This is a tangible thing. So during that first year where my job was boiling the bottles and changing diapers and trying to find ways to generate income after the bands had ended and I uh, had sort of ceased the activities that I had relied on up to that point to write. For Teria, for example, my process was I would wake up in the morning I'd have four or five massive bong hits and just drink coffee on the on the stairs and just write spacey riffs. And that was great at the time. But now, even if I tried to have done that during that period, it would have been a terrible experience because that time had ended and this one had a whole new set of parameters in which that just didn't have a place. So I would try to write, I would, you know, I had gotten some new amplifiers and, and uh, some new guitars and stuff as a result of doing the Ozfest. And I had set that up in my basement and, and I had all this wonderful gear, like these are things that I'd always wanted. I had the right amplifiers and the right guitars and the right pickups and all this sort of thing, but no riffs and no inspiration for music there is nothing and anytime I went to write and this ha has happened throughout my career and I think if you're uh, a musical creator you'd, you'd relate to this too anytime I'm in this period of change and I pick up the guitar my hands default to patterns and shapes that I had been doing for all the time prior but it just seems tired and old and uninspired and so I'd had all this gear and I'd think okay well I'm gonna set up the rack like this and I'm gonna set up my amps like this and I'm gonna get this guitar like this and I'm gonna get the sound and then I would spend all sorts of time learning about it now this was new as well I was learning about how to wire things up and how to modify guitars and how to do setups on guitars and figuring out what types of picks I actually liked and what types of tubes I actually liked. It became that. But at the time, I didn't realize that that was a skill set that would benefit me in the future, which it did. I just was convinced that I was doing it so that I could start to write. I thought, well, maybe all it will take for me to, to get to the point where I've got new riffs and new songs is to get this gear together. So I kept learning about it and changing it and learning about it and changing it. And at that point, I started creating relationships with gear companies. I was with ESP Guitars at the time and Mesa Boogie and I forget who else, Maxon and uh, Line 6 and a bunch of companies. And, and what was interesting is, although the career had changed and although my, my bands were no longer active, my work that I had done in the past had put me in a position where I had 
some degree of influence in terms of being on the internet and, and promoting gear and things like that. Yet every time I got a new piece of gear and set it up, or any time I thought that all it would take for me to kickstart some, some creative energies would be a certain pickup or what have you, I'd get it and it would still be the same tired old riffs. I had worked out the main riff to hyperdrive and I kept playing that. And it seemed like even though it was even though it was really an interesting riff, lyrically it was it was more interesting to me because it seemed to be very much in line with it's kind of this melancholy, you know, sail away, hey I'm sorry, every day is a new day. Uh, I'm just trying to find a new way. All those sorts of things about hyperdrive. Yet when I tried to follow that inclination and say, okay, well, maybe there's a bunch more songs like that. That was the only one. So it was another stalemate. So life goes on. And it's kids and, you know, wife and health and 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 money and mortgages and I remember actually right before I, I cut my hair off I had to go try and get a loan so I could get some recording gear I wanted to take time to to just write for a while and, and see what came up but I didn't have a studio I didn't have any recording gear I had all this guitar stuff but I didn't have any recording gear so I went to the bank to take out a loan for $50,000 to get recording gear. And that was the start of the studio. And a lot of the ways now, even though my studio setup is, is really professional, it's reasonably um, conservative. I don't have a massive amount of gear. I just have what I need. But it all started from this initial investment. And I remember going into the bank with all these, you know, I had the skullet and I was 50 pounds overweight and I had a beige sweater on to try and have some degree of respectability to my look. And I remember looking in the mirror prior to getting into the bank and it was, I was like, oh, you look like Krusty the Clown. <laughs> the skullet at that point, which people even to this day are like, oh, you should do it again. I remember thinking at the time, this serves zero purpose to what my current reality is all about. Zero purpose. And that was underlined by looking at myself in the mirror prior to, go, prior to going to the bank and just being like, you look legitimately like a clown. And all these things that had been important to you before, like, hey, you suck, and fuck you, you fucking fuck, and all this, all this antagonistic stuff, was replaced by, you know, I gotta change the diapers and I've I've gotta get a loan and I've gotta try and figure out how to get the mortgage paid and I Yeah, I was just it was really, really a shift. And so I cut my hair and I came back and I kept trying to write nothing, nothing, nothing. During this time I would go visit friends and beave my good buddy who ended up being in DTP with me years later and he was in DTB and you know we went to high school I've talked about B for years 
I would go to his house when I was trying to change. You know, I was trying to stop smoking. I was trying to... Kid had just been born. And I'd go to his house and we would just hang out. It was nice. He, Him and Scotty, his roommate, had a basement suite. And I would just go there during the day when wife and kid were asleep. And I'd just... <laughs> I just, you know, I'd go there and just play guitar and just try and figure out what was going on and sit on the couch and just chill out. Just a tiny apartment suite. And um, one day we were hanging out and Beeve had bought this tiny little digital video camera. It was, I think it cost him like 60 bucks or something. He always had this, this, he would get a kick out of finding cheap, small sort of digital things like a tiny he'd say check this out I found this tiny little recorder or this tiny little guitar amp or this tiny little video recorder and it was just fun he'd get them like maybe in from China or something it was maybe a hobby of his and he had gotten this video camera and it was just terrible quality and and I said well we should make a little we should make a little video where we each get a character it was just fun. And, uh, you know, he had a potato or something and, and he had, you know, his stoner potato. I forget what it was. And Scotty had some character that he made up. And I took a, a sock and there was a couple of Hershey's Kisses, you know, those chocolates, right? And I put a piece of gaff tape on top of the sock and made those eyes. And then my little video, I was like, oh, I've got, a, I've got an alien. He's this intergalactic alien. And they were like, well, what's his name? And I was like, I don't know. Uh, what's his space name? Ziltoid. And so I did this little voice. And I was like, it was a little different then. I was like, I'm Ziltoid and I'm an alien. And, and we did these things. And I remember he sent it to me. And I remember looking at it. And when I was a kid, I loved Jim Henson and the Dark Crystal, as I think I may have mentioned on one of these podcasts. I just loved it. I loved the idea that it was this elaborate world that he had created and the amount of money that went into making the Dark Crystal was excessive, but he did it because it's what he wanted to do. He wanted to create a world. And so I'd always loved the idea of the Dark Crystal, even on Alien, the song Skeksis. Skeksis is one of the, the creatures from the Dark Crystal. And Skeksis, as a, as a character in the Dark Crystal, was this sort of lizard, you know, this sort of ostentatious lizard. And when I watched that little Handycam video that Beave sent me, I thought, man, I always wanted to make a Skeksis. I always wanted to make a Dark Crystal character. The making of the Dark Crystal was almost my favorite part of the whole movie experience. They had this 45 minute long behind the scenes thing where they had all the puppeteers and all the people with the silicone and the mechanisms and they're making these, these creatures come to life. And then their personalities were, were defined by the puppeteer that was using them. And I hadn't thought of making music based on this at all. 
And I thought, well, you know, it'd be really cool is because I'm in want of music at this point, because there's no songs coming out of me directly at this point. Why don't I just try something different? Why don't I make a puppet? So I had a few people who I knew, Val and Marcus Rogers and a bunch of other people who I had worked with during the strapping days that did special effects. They worked in the movie industry in Vancouver. And I called them up and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I've always wanted to make a puppet. I've always wanted to make, you know, a kind of monster puppet and make it look real and, and all of this. How do you do this? I've never done it. And they gave me some very rudimentary suggestions. They're like, well, you get the modeling clay and you mount it on something on a desk and you start by modeling and you get the eyes and, you know, the eyes can be ping pong balls and the clay version of it that you make, you then cast in silicone. So you have a reverse mold and then you fill that with your latex and then when you remove that, then you fill it with the, um, the foam that kind of keeps the solidity and then you paint it and add the hair and the eyes and the mechanics. And they say it's a very involved and expensive process, but if you just wanted to make a puppet, we could help you make something rudimentary that might be fun. So I got a little stand and a bunch of modeling clay and I just plopped it on the kitchen table, basically, because of the chaos of the kids and, you know, the parents over and the in-laws over and, and all these things going on and the problems of, you know, just postpartum and, and, you know, my changes in life. The kitchen table wasn't being used for anything. It was just kind of a dumping ground for everything. So I, I just set up this stand, plopped a big blob of modeling clay on it and just started messing around no objective zero objective and I was like okay well it looks like he's he's very much along the line of the dark crystal skexis sort of character and as I started to work on it I would do a bit and leave it for a day and then every time I walked by I'd see it and I'd be like well you know maybe he needs some maybe he needs some hair maybe he needs googly eyes maybe needs a fang and i would then call my my friends in the industry and they'd say well if you're going to do wrinkles on on it how they do that is you take a piece of saran wrap like plastic cling film and you wrap it around the clay and then use a pencil and you you make the the wrinkles on the saran wrap on the the cling film and then when you take the clean the cling film off you'll have those wrinkles without having to dig into the clay and it's a cool look and i started doing that and i it really kind of fired me up because i loved the idea of the dark crystal and that whole creating a, an alien world and the more i did it the more the ideas came together i i bought some bear's teeth from a taxidermy store and um you know had the ping pong eyes and and put little veins on the eyes and then i started thinking as i walked by him more and more i said well clearly he needs a theme song you know clearly ziltoid needs a theme song and i would continue going and hanging out with beeve and scotty and and what have you and and 
I would pick up Beef's guitar and say, hey, check it out. You remember that thing that we did the, in the basement? Um, I'm working on this stupid puppet. It's funny. I'm really enjoying it because it's it's fun. It's there's no there's no parameters for an alien puppet. It's creatively really wide open. What is he? What isn't he? It doesn't matter. As always, you know, the subconscious has more of an intention than I perhaps gave it credit at that point, which I'll get into in a bit. But I would go over to Beef's house, pick up his guitar and say, hey, check it out. I wrote this riff. That's hilarious. If I have this alien and he has a theme song, it would go like this. Don't get it done. Zill toy. Don't get it done. The omniscient. And I like the idea that it was kind of this Saturday morning dime store cartoon thing. And there is zero intention of making a record. It was just, it was fun. And it was the first time that I had fun in a long time. I remember the baby even looking at this monster puppet that I was building and his eyes are just, as babies' eyes tend to do, they're all crossed and they're looking at him. And I even got the impression that there was a six-month-old kid looking at it like, dude, dad. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> and then I carried on with it and I got uh, this box of hair I had cut off after strapping. I had taken all the hair and for whatever reason, perhaps at the amount of time that I had spent growing these horrible poop sticks, dreadlocks, whatever you want to call them, I thought, well, I'm not going to throw them out. I'll just keep them in a box for posterity. How's that? What's that word? Prosterity? That sounds like prostate. It's probably not that, but you know the one. And then I thought, well, what would happen if I put my hair on Ziltoid? And so I did. It, I, you know, I, I knew that once it got cast in latex, I would have to do it for real. But I would put the hair on this, on this clay model. And then this entity started kind of forming. I remember my mother coming by one day and looking at it and just being like, what the hell are you doing? It's like you're making some weird little voodoo doll. And then it started snowballing and I started thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if all those things that I've been afraid of thinking about, afraid of um, focusing on, Afraid of, just point blank, all that energy that during Alien, during City, during all these albums, I had written off as being an aberration or like a possession. That all that anger and all that hostility was <coughs> separate from me. And that there's no way that I, as a in my mind, gentle artistic entity could possibly be responsible for that stuff. It clearly has to be an aberration. It clearly has to be coming from elsewhere. And then I started thinking more when I was looking at this puppet I was making. Well, what happens if all of that, you're just afraid of yourself? What happens if 
that thing which you at one time had viewed as an alien is actually just repressed adolescence. And the idea of it being alien is more of a of an analogy for your inability to either understand it or face it. And that became really inspiring. I thought in line with the analysis that has clearly been a part of this process. One thing that you've been afraid to analyze is that part of your creative identity. The darkness, the aggression, the anger, all these things that, that became strapping, all the same things within strapping that I became paranoid of because I didn't understand my motivations. So what I would often do is just consciously not think about it. Like, what is the easiest way for me to function with this? I would just automatically write with alien or city or what have you, but then never think about it. There was no sense of accountability with it purposely because I was afraid of it. And then Ziltoid, all of a sudden I started thinking, well, if you can personify that, if you can objectify that part of your creative identity that is there's a certain amount of power there there's a certain amount of petulance there's a certain amount of uh, aggression but a lot of repressed adolescence it's like your childhood stuff your inability for example to express yourself emotionally your inability to know how to articulate anger without fear of, of being um, reprimanded. Your uh, connections to all sorts of things, sex, violence, all these things, that very obviously to me, there was a degree of repression. There was a degree of being stunted. And if I could put all of that into this character, and it was as soon as I put my hair on him, I thought, well, there'd be a way for me to explore that. I can't explore it without releasing it. For whatever reason, it, it almost requires me releasing it to be able to have the um, attention to detail that is required. Maybe that, at that point, had something to do with, and maybe still does, uh, the need for validity from other people's reactions to it. I know that it works because other people feel similarly about it or whatever it is. But I didn't want to explore that stuff anymore. I didn't want to explore the strapping stuff anymore. And even though there's a lot of things hidden in there that still very much needed exploration, I was afraid to. But with Ziltoid, I could frame it in this dumb comic book style story so all the things that Ziltoid as an album were about was an extension of Alien was an extension of Strapping except now I put a face to the creative mechanism so now as opposed to me 
thinking of this thing within me that was creating this energy as being this malevolent demonic thing I was now like oh it's this dorky alien and not only was it something I could look at I could say oh it's me so for the first time I was able to see all these things that had been confusing to me as being very clearly just a manifestation of all the baggage over the years. So next came the sort of conundrum. I had written a theme song. I had a character. I was aware that the character had begun to appear maybe as a way psychologically for me to uh, put a face to the past. But then what is the album about? about? How can I, how can I discuss all this? How can I get it out of my system? How can I purge this without being so direct about it that it sounds as pretentious as maybe, <laughs> as maybe this podcast about it does. And it became clear that, well, sky's the limit. You could just make a concept and the concept, the more absurd it is, the better. Because within that absurdity, you can explore sonically and thematically all these things that you're afraid of. And it actually doesn't matter what the story is. The more out there, the better. It could have characters, it could have, it could have a protagonist and an antagonist, and it can have this, that, and the other thing. And I remember a friend of mine spurred the idea on about coffee when I was sort of riffing with him. I'm like, well, what is Ziltoid's motivation? And he's like, well, it's maybe it's something silly. Maybe he's just, he's got all sorts of power. He's got all sorts of influence that he's young and immature and doesn't know how to wield necessarily. And he's got a bad temper. And you know, maybe all he wants is, is just a cup of coffee. Maybe that's it. And then I started thinking about that and I was like, well, maybe we could take the idea of he ends up destroying worlds and raising planets and, and wielding unbelievable power based on the fact that he's just petulant. He's just a kid. And, you know, all he wants is just, you know, something benign. So then I took the idea of the coffee and maybe that could be not only does he want a cup of coffee, but maybe coffee plays some role on his planet where here it's a stimulant, but there it's, it's like, um, the ultimate source of fuel. Like it, it, uh, whatever, you know, it's, it, it can you can bend space and time with coffee like the spice from dune and then further from that maybe ziltoid as a character in the eyes of humans is this omnidimensional hyper powerful alien overlord but back home 
he's just this kind of awkward nerd. And so maybe his quest to find this fuel um, is ultimately he's just trying to fit in back home. And if he can bring back all this, this fuel, he'll be accepted. He won't be an outcast. And maybe amidst that, when he presents himself to humanity and humanity who is only on a certain dimensional awareness sees this awkward, nerdy character that's a dimension above, then they will rever him as like a god. And because he's uh, as insecure as he is, that becomes his motivation. And throughout that, I start thinking, okay, well, then he meets, maybe there's a sentient nebula. Maybe the omnidimensional creator, maybe he's able to present all he has found to this uh, interpretation of the infinite or God or whatever you want to call it. And maybe there's this other character, maybe his sidekick. You know, I started thinking about all these old comics and all these things about, well, what typically happens? Joseph Campbell and Hero's Journey and um, Captain Spectacular being maybe the other side of me. Maybe Captain Spectacular can be the rational, you know, uh, sort of puffed up right brain father or what have you. And they're actually two sides of the same coin and his sidekick could be this tiny little furry cute thing that has a voice that destroys planets. And it really didn't matter. I just started riffing, basically. And then as the story went, it became clear that the trajectory of the story was, you know, just nonsense, really. And I had Beave and Dave come down and do voices for it and Beave did the narration you know that whole Ziltoid that's Beave he was there when I was writing and he was there when I came up with the character you know what I mean it's it's having him involved was great it was another way for to for us to hang out and Dave Young came by and did the voice of the omnidimensional creator and uh, and it just started to evolve and I started writing. And the difference with this album and all the other ones was I did this one on basically the least amount of gear that I could technically do at that point. I had done the last strapping record, The New Black, with Mike Fraser at the Warehouse Studios and you know the full band and, and drum techs and guitar techs and armory for drum tracking and that album ended up costing between the album and Ozfest, you know, maybe two or three hundred thousand dollars just to do that album. And I remember thinking even at the time, that's absurd. That's an absurd amount of money. And if I'm gonna make a record and support the family, uh I want to see if I can do this for less and another part and another motivator for me was the sense from 
certain engineers or producers that I had worked with that you can't make a record for under a certain amount of money. You know, kind of scoffingly, like a professional record can't be made for less than $200,000. And I remember thinking, I don't know if you're right about that. So the $50,000 loan I took out from the bank, I bought an iMac, I bought a Line 6 uh, XT Live, I bought a Shure SM7 microphone, I bought a Universal Audio 6176 preamp, I bought a weighted keyboard, I got a bunch of software, I got Pro Tools, uh, I had been working with TuneTrack through my involvement with Frederick and they had just released Drum Kit from Hell and between the, the Line 6 Pod XT Live Tune Track and this little rig that was it I said you know what I'm going to record the entire record like this on my own with a drum machine with a Line 6 Pod with one microphone my one main guitar and a bass but I'll do all the keyboards myself I'll do it all myself have my buddies come by and maybe add some voices or, or what have you but that's it and as always I started the artwork at the same time and I contacted Travis Smith who's always kind of been there for me and, and uh, always has been a fantastic cohort in terms of being willing to go down these creative avenues that sometimes work and sometimes don't. I said, hey man, I'm trying to put together what would be kind of like a, a comic book character. And he said, well, we could have maybe like 10 cents in the corner and have them on the cover. And so he started working on this at the same time that I started putting together these digital songs. And in hindsight, the first version of, of the TuneTrack Easy Drummer software, Drum Kit from Hell, doesn't hold up as well as their software now. I mean, the software that I use from Easy Drummer and TuneTrack now is, you know, it's incredible. And even at the time, it was, it was an epiphany for me because it sounded like drums. It was, they have this technology called Round Robin where they'll have seven different dynamic layers and within each one of those layers is a rotating cast, I guess you could say, of samples. So if you've got a snare roll, and this was kind of new at the time, if you've got a snare roll, it's going each one of those within the dynamic range will be a different sample. So it sounds much more like a real drummer and that would be the case with the cymbals and the rooms and all this. As opposed to a traditional drum machine where it's the same sound each time. So it's like ding, 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 ding. This would be more like... It's hard to explain, but... And I would go for a drive as I was writing these songs and I'd listen to it and I'd be shocked at how cool it sounded. And that started sending me down these avenues with certain arpeggios and certain themes and all sorts of things that I could do entirely on my own in the basement after my fatherly duties were done for the day or what have you and this record started to appear and I could do it without a band and I could do it without other musicians and it could be 
thematically a way for me to contend with some of the baggage that had started to accumulate after Alien in a reasonably safe fashion. During this time, I started producing bands too. I thought, okay, well, I need to make a living. I'm not touring. I'm not putting out records. I had no intention really of putting Ziltoid out. I just was doing it. So I started producing. I did a couple of records for Darkest Hour and Misery Signals and who else did we do at that time? Did a bunch of bands. Did a bunch of bands. And so I would do these bands and learn more how to produce, learn more how to engineer, and then come home and just keep sort of applying those things to, to the Ziltoid record. And then one day I, I scheduled a meeting with Thomas from Inside Out, who had been there since Physicist, who I've mentioned before. I said, listen, man, I've got this bizarre idea that I've been working on without any intention of it becoming a record because, you know, it's drum machine, it's super low buck, super budget sort of thing. But it's turning into something that I actually think is the next record. And he said, well, what's the concept? And I'm like, well, it's this omnidimensional alien that is in search for the universe's ultimate cup of coffee because it is fuel for his home planet and he's a nerd back there and he's got this planet smasher and then he meets God and there's a sentient universe and, and nebula and he's like, hold on, hold on, what? <laughs> I said, well, ultimately it acts as a metaphor for all that I'm trying to process from the first part of the career, from all of what had happened since we've known each other. Strapping, infinity, drugs, all that. It's a way for me to analyze it, put a face to it, and work through it. So when I go to what happens next, this will act as a bridge between then and what ultimately ended up becoming Devin Townsend Project. And after we talked a little bit more, Thomas just, I heard him sort of go, okay, let's try it, let's see. And so I went about making, and I wanted to mix it too on my iMac, on my little Macintosh computer, you know, Apple computer. I wanted to do it with what I had. I didn't want to go into the studio to mix it. I didn't want any additional gear. I wanted almost as an example, I wanted this record to be done with the least amount of gear possible, without any additional input, without anybody playing on it. I wanted it to be this insular little project that ultimately benefited from all the the humility that came from having kids and the, the chaos that came psychologically from that transition and the awareness that a lot of what I had deemed as being so important to me creatively in the past had a certain amount at least to do with the fact that I didn't have to deal with any <clears throat> real life 
I didn't have to have somebody else in my life to care for. I didn't have to put myself aside for the sake of a of a an entity or a child that is helpless or you know your your parents or your your wife or your none of that had been I'd almost been in this state of suspended uh, reality since the Steve Vai project that at no time forced me out of that and so I could swirl in it and get obsessed with it and all these things and so Ziltoid as a character and as an album served much more as an overarching summary of what had happened up to that point than what the story would imply. On the surface, it's this dumb little drum machine album, you know, about an alien looking for coffee. It's ridiculous. But that served as a platform for me to have a reasonably safe space to explore things that I was uncomfortable talking about in my work. But if I didn't talk about it, it would not allow me to progress. So Thomas said, yes, we'll put it out. And I, the only investment that I did with this record, other than, than having Travis involved on the art, was mastering. So I hired Yui Nastasi, who was the guy who had mastered the new black. Because I figured that although I'm going to mix it myself and it's, you know, I'm still learning how to mix. And Kestra was the first one. This was technically the second record I had ever really mixed. I said, if we can have somebody at least master it so the frequency range is, is a little more appropriate and, and the volumes are right, then that's a way to kind of do it. So that was an investment as well. And then when it was finished... I remember listening to it and thinking, well, it is what it is. It's, it's like a glorified demo in a sense. But it had some really, really emotional moments. And it had some really, really vibey moments too. And the summary at the end of Ziltoid, which at the time when it came out, the reviews for it were mixed. People are saying, you know, this go from strapping to this drum machine alien thing it's just stupid basically but I d wasn't comfortable in, in making the the uh, explanation of this record what I'm comfortable in doing now it just seemed it was too soon it was and, I, and frankly I probably didn't even know to the same extent that I do now but one thing that was very conscious was the song Color Your World so at the end of it so in the end, it's beautiful. You know, that whole idea of like, well, we went through it. And now it's over. And how do you feel now that it's over? And now that, you know, you, it's time to cut your hair. It's time to change. It's time to move forward. How do you feel about this fear and this? And that was the moment that I felt was where an epiphany came. I was like, oh, it's beautiful. All of it. The the pain, the 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 beauty, the the kids, the the birth, the the death, the the music, the anger, it's it's beautiful. And so the rhythm at the end after that, it goes, We are all puppets. 
and that rhythm dan 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 is the same rhythm from infodump from alien which is morse code for om the overarching vibration of the universe they say in some of these you know spiritual fronts om a u m om o m so that rhythm there we are all puppets and the idea that ziltoid was a puppet became this kind of meta thing where the whole the whole act of being a human it's like we play out these roles it's like the universe is a is entirely light and our role in it is a projection of that light on this moment and so all that we play you know whether or not in this life we play um, musician or mother or, or servant or, or whatever our trip is it's we're a part of something and the idea of our avatar our entities that we play being like a puppet in a sense that we control from a place of higher consciousness I guess became really uh, the point of that record and then at the end the last song tall latte after this big you know massive dramatic absurd arc about this alien and his huge amounts of power and and the light and the universe and ohm and all these things the last song is almost <laughs> the most important part of it because the guy who was so basically the last song latte tall latte it ends up that this entire story was a daydream in the mind of somebody who's working at a coffee shop and he ends up just waking up to realizing that there's a customer that's cussing him out basically for for not paying attention or his managers cussing him out for not paying attention and it's that guy in the coffee shop was supposed to be a metaphor for I guess where I found myself that through all of this the reality of my life was much different than this drama that I had played out over the past however many years and it was almost like your inability to understand yourself or the lack of real power that one has in day-to-day -day life it's easy to project that and and create this thing that no it's actually not that I'm a father with a child it's not that I'm a worker at a coffee shop whatever the analogy is I need to believe it's more I need to believe I am this massive powerful you know domineering malicious alien and then by getting to the end and recognizing that it's a role and it's a it's a story the reality of that is it's almost like waking up from a, a decade-long dream 
and almost immediately I started writing key. So yeah, Ziltoid. <laughs> I always like the idea as well that I didn't know when I was writing the record that it's pronounced omniscient. I think it's pronounced that omniscient, omniscient. I didn't know that. I thought it was omniscient. So I had done all these promos for it with my with my puppet. And I said, I'm Ziltoid, the omniscient, yes. And then, as the internet tends to do, someone's like, it's actually pronounced omniscient. <laughs> and I was like, not on his planet it isn't. Fuck off. <laughs> and before I go here today, it, what really changed things was Tuska Festival in Finland Joni who's the promoter of that he contacted the management I had at the time he says we want to do Ziltoid in its entirety in Finland and I was like there's no there's no way I, people would have to learn it I haven't played live it's like it's I can't do this but it also seemed like wow if I did do it it would allow me to have an objective so I could kind of start playing again and work through all this past. And that ultimately became the DTP. And that became another decade of, I guess, retroactively trying to figure out what had happened through key addicted deconstruction ghost. So Ziltoid as silly, as low-budget, as demo-ish as it sounds, was almost the pivot point for this entire story. And there was before it and there was after it. And they're two entirely different versions of <laughs> who I am. Next record I'm going to talk about will be Key. And we're working towards it. And like I said in the beginning of this, the whole objective of this podcast, as much as I like to think that maybe there's some benefit for people, and as much as it maybe allows me to keep in contact with people, verbally here at least, um, I'm writing a new record. And empath was the culmination of all of this so strapping dtp all the infinity ziltoid all of that it all came together for empath and now i'm in a position very similar to where i was whilst writing ziltoid where every time i pick up a guitar it's there's nothing there and it's not that there's nothing there is it's just the changes that have occurred have been artistically quite monumental for me recently and I'm waiting for all the pieces to coagulate into an identity so I'm very interested in what is coming out next in my creative identity in my mind 
And the best way for me to be able to start putting together the pieces of this new puzzle is to have some degree of analysis over how I got to where I am. And I'm in a completely new place right now. And it's a place that I really, really appreciate. It's much different than Zilda, much different than where I was with any of this stuff. But I'm working towards talking about empath. Key is next. I hope you guys are doing okay. And I sincerely wish you and your family and your mental health nothing but peace. And I hope throughout the chaos of this period, you're able to find moments that will allow you to reflect to a certain degree on your pasts as well. Maybe it won't work for you, but for me, I do find that if I can identify where the mechanisms are in my current life that are causing me problems and trace it back to where the genesis of that problem was, then I do find peace. So until next time, take good care of yourself. Dev out.